Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at theschoolofchrist.org. Jesus in Genesis. This is part one of a series of messages where I would like for us to go through and find in the first book of the Bible revelations and manifestations of the Lord Jesus. And for me, I think that this mostly has to do with a simple observation, a simple truth, that in the plan and purpose of God, Christ was and is the center and the focal point of that plan. And what I mean by that is that Christ was and is the plan of God from the beginning. Christ was not an afterthought. Christ was not something that came forth from the heart of God in response to our sin, in response to Adam and Eve's fall from grace in the Garden of Eden. And what I want to convey to you is that Christ is the central, focal, preeminent point in the plan and purpose of God, not only for our redemption, which is in itself a a response to Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind. That That is a response, but what I'm trying to communicate to you is that Christ was in the plan and purpose of God from the very beginning before creation. But also from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, it is the book of beginnings, we see Jesus revealed uh, in in different ways. Um, And so that's what I want to trace with you in this series of teachings, uh, Jesus in Genesis. And we begin with part one this evening, and um, I'll ask you to turn to Genesis chapter one as we begin. Uh, We'll share this message in three parts today. Number one, in the beginning, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end it says in the book of Revelation. And so the alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. So he is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. So the book of Revelation really represents the omega, the end, the crowning achievement of all that God has done, is doing, and will do. Everything finds its purpose and its fulfillment and its ultimate expression 
and perfection in Christ the Omega. But in Christ the Alpha, or Christ the Beginning, Christ the First, we see the plan, the purpose, the intention, the heart, the mind of God. And along with that, I would say, we also see in Christ God's intention and purpose for mankind. That God would create earth and that God would create man, men and women is what I mean, mankind, humankind, but would create men and women as the crowning achievement of creation. But that these men and women would be created in the image of God and would ultimately grow and mature spiritually to the point that Christ would be fully manifest in them and through them to the extent that man and God would be one. If you take that as God's plan and purpose from the very beginning, then it helps to understand why it would be necessary when mankind fell into sin and opened the door to evil and opened the door to darkness and death and the devil. You would understand then why God so loved the world that he would give his only son in response to that fall and then invite you and I and actually whosoever will to remember the height from which we have fallen, to repent, to return to our first love and to remain and continue and abide and live in this union with Christ. That, in a nutshell, is really the entire Bible. It lays out from the very beginning God's purpose and intention in Christ. It describes for us how and why and that mankind drifted off course, fell into sin. By one man's action, it says, by one man's sin, death entered into the world. And so all die in Adam, Scripture declares, and yet in Christ all will be made alive. What I'm saying is that God counted on this. He factored this in from the very beginning. And so we spend a great deal of time in the New Testament, and rightly so. It's in the New Testament, in the Gospels particularly, and exclusively, that we see the ministry of Jesus. We see the full revelation of the Word made flesh, dwelt among us. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see and read and experience His teachings, His miracles. Uh, we bear witness in the Scriptures to His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And so we rightly spend a lot of time in the Gospels and in the New Testament so that uh, we can clearly see the simplicity of Christ. But there is a tremendous foundation that was built up for millennia before the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that began all the way back in the book of Genesis. And that's what I want to show you that from the beginning, in the beginning, 
God has steadily revealed Christ, and it has been a progressive revelation in Scripture, beginning with types and shadows and symbols and prophetic signs and words of prophecy and a lot of pieces of the puzzle, but never the complete picture until you reach the Gospels. And so this this gradual unfolding and revealing of Christ took place over 4,000 years from Genesis to Malachi. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. And then we begin to see the full picture coming forth. And we still don't see the full picture. But in the Omega, in the end, in the last which Jesus is all of these things, and he is also the last Adam. In Adam all die, but in Christ, the second Adam, or the last Adam, all will be made alive. And so we are still experiencing that progressive revelation of Christ. We are growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. There is still much of him to discover, much of him to experience, much more so than what we already know and experience now. And so we are growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. As we continue to grow, Christ continues to be revealed. But if Christ is growing and increasing and we are coming to an ever-deepening knowledge of him, there was a beginning someplace where Christ is revealed, and what I'm saying is that Christ is revealed in Scripture long before the Gospels. The Old Testament is filled with these prophetic symbols and types so that someone who is spiritually astute, someone who is spiritually discerning, should be able to recognize Christ the Messiah when he did finally take on flesh and blood and appear. And, um, you know, when, when I'm teaching in the Gospels and I'm talking about how the disciples didn't really understand Jesus, the Pharisees certainly didn't recognize him as such, the people were generally confused. Well, some say he's a great teacher, some say he's a prophet. That is true that for the most part, in spite of having the Scriptures, They didn't recognize and properly discern the Lord Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But it is not to say that no one recognized him, because we see people like Anna, who, being, I think, 86 years of age, it says, never left the temple, but she served God, ministered to the Lord with prayer and fasting day and night. And she certainly recognized the Lord Jesus, and as well as Simeon, who had a revelation that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah, the Christ. And um, so he came into the temple. They both came into the temple. And so Anna and Simeon, to me, represent that remnant of people who are spiritually discerning. No matter how... No matter how otherwise ignorant and dull the general population may be, no matter how antagonistic and um, deaf and dumb to the ways of God the general public may be, or even uh, those who claim to know God but don't know God. However, 
dull spiritually. I believe, I have to believe that God always preserves a remnant of people. And these are the Simeons, these are the Annas, these are the people that in spite of all evidence to the contrary, they have the revelation of Christ. They are able to recognize and see Jesus for who he is. And uh, so that was a remnant in Israel. So what is the implication to you and to me? Well, I, I would say to you, first of all, that the revelation of Christ is uh, not to be found in the church, in the religious system. Uh, in fact, that religious system distracts us from the simplicity of Christ and actually hinders us from the full knowledge of Christ as he in fact is. But I do believe that God has, in spite of that, preserved a remnant of people who have the revelation of Christ and will bear the testimony of Jesus in the earth just as Simeon and Anna did in that period of time when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the meantime, we have this entire record of Scripture to assist us. So we have this huge foundation of 4,000 years of progressive revelation in Scripture all the way up to the point of Jesus, the Word made flesh and dwelling among us, we have the record of his ministry, uh, and then the epistles begin to further explore what it means, Paul says, this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, to the extent that uh, we not only look to the life and earthly ministry and teaching and works and miracles of Jesus, which are very important and absolutely critical to knowing him, but there is a depth and dimension of knowing Christ that goes beyond simply what Scripture says, and that is knowing Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is why Paul is praying that their eyes would be open, that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. And these are people who already know the Lord, and yet Paul is praying that they would know Jesus to an even greater depth. That's my message to you, that this Bible that we have, it's progressive from the beginning in Genesis all the way through to Revelation. It is a written record and revelation of Christ, but it bears witness to an even greater reality and even greater truth and even greater relationship than the Jesus we meet in the pages of this book. There is the Jesus that lives in us, the Jesus whom we live in. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ, Paul says, and all the fullness of Christ dwells in us that we would be complete in him. How is that possible? Because Paul says in Ephesians 3 that Christ is dwelling in our hearts by faith, not just a historical man on the pages of a holy book, but a holy spirit and holy presence and holy heart and holy love of God dwelling in our hearts by faith, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. All of this has a beginning, and with that introduction to the series, let's get into, in the beginning, Jesus in Genesis part one, in the beginning, secondly, the word of God, thirdly, the light of the world. So we will begin reading in Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. I believe, if I am not mistaken, in the Hebrew it is simply two words, light be. Light be. And there was light. So God said, Light be, and light was. <laughs> Let there be light, God said, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So in the beginning, Jesus in Genesis, why are we doing this series, as I said, to show that Christ was in the plan, purpose, and will of God in the beginning? Christ is not God's startled reaction to some unforeseen complication in creation when Adam decided to rebel against the Lord and then the devil got a foothold and death entered into the world because of sin. And then uh, God, taken by surprise, wasn't quite sure what to do, and so he came up with this plan of sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. That would put God in the position of being reacting instead of responding. Uh, Jesus coming and uh, giving himself, he says, my body I give for the life of the world. That's not God's startled reaction to something that he had no idea was going to happen. But this was part of the plan and purpose of God all along uh, to reveal Christ from the very beginning. And so uh, that's why we are here in this book of beginnings in Jesus, because uh, in Genesis, Jesus being revealed, these things are written as an example for us. So we can trace from the beginning and see the mind and plan and purpose and heart of God. Now, verse two, it says in the New King James Version that the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. Most English translations translate it, the earth was without form. But if you look again into the original Hebrew, one possible translation of this that, would, that might be more accurate is that the earth became formless and void. So you have in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then something happened so that the earth became formless and void. And so what you really have in Genesis 1 is the recreation of heaven and earth, or the recreation of earth specifically. When, it's, it, when it refers to heaven here, it's referring to the firmament um, above. The firmament or the space or the atmosphere surrounding the earth is referred to as heaven. Uh, but in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and if, if the Hebrew is correct, that the earth became formless and void and became filled with darkness, uh, then it, it speaks to the possibility of some kind of cataclysm. Now, some Bible scholars believe that this was when Satan rebelled, when Lucifer rebelled against uh, God and was cast down from heaven. Uh, some other biblical scholars will say that Lucifer was actually in charge of the earth, in charge of creation when he rebelled against God and sought to exalt himself against God and then uh, was cast down or stripped of his, uh, of his authority 
on the earth and that God made a new beginning after he judged that and then put man in the place, uh, not an angel uh, like Lucifer who became Satan, but a man made in his image and then women as well made in the image of God as physical beings, but with the spiritual capacity for knowing and relating and living in union with God. And this would explain why the serpent in Genesis 3 would come and would tempt Adam and Eve and persuade them to uh, to also rebel against the Lord. It would it, that that version of events makes sense to me because it speaks to the jealousy that man is occupying a place in in creation that Lucifer once enjoyed and uh, because of his own pride uh, fell out of favor and God judged that and it also explains why why now the devil and Satan is so intent upon controlling the world, controlling the earth, even though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. But it says that this world lies under the sway or the influence of the evil one. And so uh, that's pure speculation, though that that, uh, narrative of events, but it seems to ring true to me that this may be the case, uh, that the earth became formless and void. But the point is that God was not satisfied with this darkness, and God immediately acted to dispel the darkness, to get rid of it, to push it back with what? With light. Uh, so this is a case of divine intervention. We've talked about divine intervention in the in the context of spiritual warfare, that God did not simply create everything and then uh, sit back and passively watch from the sidelines to see how things would develop, but that God is interested in a in a love relationship with you, and that God does intervene and take action upon uh, this creation, and so He is deeply involved in what's going on. We call that divine intervention. So the first act of divine intervention, apart from the initial creating of the heavens and the earth, is that God acted and moved against this darkness that had filled the earth. Uh, Whether it became formless and void and filled with darkness, or whether it simply was that way, however you want to interpret it, God immediately acted to dispel the darkness with light. So it says God created the light. He saw that the light was good and he divided light from darkness. He made a distinction between the light and the darkness. So God created light. You'll see here it says that uh, evening and the morning were the first day. Immediately after God said, let there be light, He saw that the light was good. He divided the light from darkness. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now this creates the first question for us. Notice that he did not create the sun, moon, and stars until the fourth day. 
And you'll find that all the way down in verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now, (laughs) how is it that light was shining On the first day, before the sun, moon, and stars were created on the fourth day. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Why is that? How is that? Well, we will consider that, but first let's look at John chapter 1, because that will begin to answer the question for us concerning two kinds of light in the book of Genesis. But we go to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And the first thing I want you to see is how John 1 begins exactly the same way, the same phrase, the same words as Genesis 1 begins. It says, in the beginning. See that? So Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here in John 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See? He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What a tremendous testimony we have here in in John. Now, notice, as I said, the opening words of John's gospel are the same as in Genesis. In the beginning, two times here, John says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So, the word was with God, and the word was God, John says. And this makes John's gospel very unique. The reason is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke only go back to the earthly genealogy of Christ. John goes farther back. Actually, Mark doesn't go back at all and gives no history at all. It begins with John the Baptist. Matthew goes back to Abraham and traces the lineage to show that Jesus is the is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the rightful king to Israel um, in terms of ancestry. Luke works backwards from, from the birth of Christ all the way tracing the genealogy backwards to Adam. 
John is unique because he goes back even further. In the beginning. In the beginning when? In the beginning when God, it says, created the heavens and the earth. Well, John says that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And furthermore, that all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So this again supports our thesis that Christ is not an afterthought. He is not simply a reaction to a surprising development when things went bad in the Garden of Eden, uh, but was with God, was God, and was with God in the beginning was personally involved in the creation of all things. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, it says. John clearly identifies Jesus is that word, and that that word that was with God in the beginning became flesh. In other words, dwelt among us, became a man, laid aside not his divinity, but laid aside his glory, laid aside his rights and privileges as deity. He still was the Son of God and still was God, but he was the Word who made that was made flesh. He, he humbled himself, it says in Philippians chapter 2, and took upon himself the form of a servant and in, in that way became flesh and blood and took on the weakness of, of flesh and blood. And so John clearly identifies that this word that became flesh and dwelt among us is Jesus. John says that Jesus was there in the beginning. John says that Jesus was with God and was God. And John says that God created all things through him and made nothing without him. Again, this reinforces not simply that Jesus was with God in the beginning, but that Jesus shares in the divinity uh, with his Father. The Word was with God and the Word was God, and that all things were made through him. Nothing was made without him, so he was involved at every step in the beginning. This speaks to the preeminence of Christ. That Jesus did not become preeminent based on what he did on earth, but he was already preeminent, already enjoyed preeminence in the beginning with his father. And it is only the fact that he became flesh and dwelt among us that we were able to behold his glory, John says. We beheld his glory. We saw it revealed and manifest in front of us. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So all through Christ, Ephesians 3.9 also confirms what John is saying here, where Paul says his mission is to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages, see, from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning, From the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. He created all things through Jesus Christ. And this is part of the fellowship of the mystery, Paul says, which has been hidden from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning of the ages. 
That was Ephesians 3.9. And then Hebrews 1.1 also tells us that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So this is also, again, showing us that Christ has a preeminent place in the heart, mind, will, purpose, and plan of God from the beginning. Now the Greek here where it says that he made the worlds, the actual Greek word is aeon, or aeon, and so it indicates ages. He made the ages. Um, but in this context, it's referring to the fact that God has spoken to us by his Son, and it was through his Son. The reason he is speaking to us through his Son is because his Son participated in the making and the creation of the ages, which also includes uh, the creation of the world and all things. Uh, so it, it's, I'm not sure if I explained that sufficiently, but I, I am comfortable with either word ages or worlds there um, because it conveys the same idea that God made all things through Christ. Later on in Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the world's were framed again the word is aeon the ages but again in this context because it's talking about creation it still shows that god is doing all of this through christ by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of god and we know who that word of god is the word of god is revealed in john 1 what we just read in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that word that became flesh and dwelt among us is jesus we beheld him saw him and interacted with him god in the flesh so hebrews eleven three by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of god so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible so the invisible brought forth the visible simply means that Christ in the bosom of God from the very beginning was intimately involved in the plan and purpose of God from the beginning. Okay, so then as we return back to John chapter 1 and let's begin reading, resuming again in verse 5 and this time read uh, down through verse 13 which we skipped over previously. So it says, and this will answer our question from Genesis 1. So John 1, 5, it says that the, well, back up to verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Comprehend means it did not overcome it. It could not overwhelm it and said the light overwhelmed the darkness. The light comprehended the darkness. The light shone against the darkness and pushed the darkness back. The light shining divided the darkness from the light. Remember, God said that the light is good. In verse 6 of John 1, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, 
but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. There we are again, the preeminence of Christ. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Remember I said previously that for the most part, he was not recognized, he was not discerned, apart from a remnant who, by the grace and revelation of God, did see him and did know who he was. But the fact is that most of the population failed to recognize him. Verse 11, again, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, praise the Lord. So, the light of the world. John says that Christ is the life and the light of God, and that darkness could not overcome this light. This means, going back to Genesis 1 again, that the light we find shining in Genesis 1, this is the light from day one, before the sun, moon, and stars were created, was not a natural light. It was a spiritual light. It was, in fact, a personality. It was Christ shining forth in his pre-existent, pre-eminent glory. Hallelujah. Now, I believe that light was also the first thing created in this universe, in this natural universe, I should say. And the interesting thing is that Scientists who study these things will tell you that the universe is expanding outwardly all the time. Well, if it is expanding outwardly, and at, at what speed? At the speed of light, as a matter of fact. It is light that is expanding outwardly. And so the size of this universe is increasing at a speed of at the speed of light, which is approximately 186,000 miles per hour. That sounds like it's really fast, and it is, but even at this distance, it takes, or even at that speed, it takes light to travel from the sun to the earth uh, roughly nine minutes, a little bit more than nine minutes, I believe, because the sun is about 93 million miles from earth. So even at that tremendous speed over tremendous distance, you're still talking about uh, several minutes. It's mind-boggling to think about. But I see in the expansion of the universe a spiritual truth, and it's revealed in John 3.30, what I consider to be seven of the, some of the, of the greatest uh, words in Scripture, seven simple words that explains the law of increase and the law of decrease. John 3.30 says, He, Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
And that is a, there is a spiritual significance to that, but we see it being illustrated in the fact that God says, let there be light. And ever since light has been shining forth, spiritually speaking, as well as naturally speaking, expanding this natural universe and always increasing, always growing, always expanding. And in the similar way, the law of increase says that Christ must increase. He must increase. And if he must increase, then he will increase and he is increasing. And what I love about this truth is it doesn't matter if you agree with it, if you understand it, if you believe it or not, it's happening irrespective of how we choose to think about it. It just is. Christ must increase. In the book of Isaiah, it says that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, just as there is no end to this universe mind-boggling and beyond our ability to comprehend, but we are speaking about the pre-existent and preeminent glory of God through Jesus Christ. He is increasing, and he is the light shining forth in Genesis 1. The light that shines in, uh, in the creation in day one, long before sun, moon, and stars are created in day four, The other extraordinary thing about what John is saying here is that this true light, who is Christ, gives light to every man coming into the world. Verse 9, that was the true light, Jesus, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. What What a statement of hope and faith that God through Christ, is shining his light upon every man coming into the world. There is hope, there is salvation, there is redemption, there is forgiveness of sins, there is reconciliation available to all in Christ, and that this light, this true light, gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, they have a choice to make whether they will embrace that light or whether they will stay in the darkness, but uh, the fact is that this true light is shining on every man coming into the world uh, regardless, because he must increase, therefore he will increase, and he is increasing. That's encouraging to me. Also notice that the world is the focus here. It lights every man not coming into the church, It is not the light that lights every man coming into Israel. It is not the true light which gives light to every man or woman who believes or who prays the sinner's prayer. But it is the light that gives light to every man coming into the world. That's why the scriptures declare that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. The world does not belong to the devil. Maybe it did once in the pre-existence, pre-existent creation that we speculated about between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1-2, or verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis 1, uh, perhaps, but not anymore. All authority, Jesus says, is given to me in heaven and earth, and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So this light 
is the true light that lights every man coming into the world. And the important thing to keep in mind is the darkness can resist it, but the darkness cannot overcome it. Hallelujah. And this is such an important theme that John repeats it many times in his gospel, and you'll be familiar. I'll just show you some examples. But you have seen and heard these before. John 3.19, The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. See, the light has come into the world, just as it did in Genesis 1. John 8.12, Jesus himself declares, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, once again, back to John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus uh, says that himself. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This indicates a spiritual light equivalent to spiritual life or eternal life or the very life and nature of God. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. I'm not the light of Israel. I'm not the light of the church. Those are just exclusive groups, part of the world, but he is the light of the world. He is the light of God's creation. And he lights every man who comes into the world. Everyone born into this world is born into this light who is Christ. We don't make any New Age assertions that we are all children of light because, once again, you have to make a choice. And this is the choice. You don't have to walk in darkness, but you can have the light of life. But as we saw previously, what we just read in, in John 3, the light is coming to the world. That's true. And light has, has shined upon every man or person coming into the world. That's true as well. But it says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So there's got to be a deliverance. There's got to be a reconciliation there. To open their eyes, Jesus says, and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So the power of Satan is relative to darkness, and the power of God is relative to light. I am the light of the world, Jesus says, and if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Again, in John 9, 5, Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Hallelujah. Again, John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world. That whoever believes in me should not abide or live in darkness. What a wonderful, powerful, spiritual truth. And all of that began in Genesis 1. Light was separated from darkness twice in Genesis 1. The first was a spiritual separation we could not see. And the second was a natural separation we can see. When God said, let there be light, he established the foundation of the spiritual and the natural world. In the natural world, according to what we can observe, light is increasing the size of our universe infinitely in every direction. But in the spiritual world, the true light, Jesus Christ, is shining into spiritual darkness with an irresistible, unstoppable brightness. When God said, let there be light, he was saying, let Christ be infinitely increased in all directions at once. And it was 
so. He must increase, therefore he will increase, and he is increasing. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at theschoolofchrist.org.